Well, my name is Andrew Stroud. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. They had me write these words, but I don't know how well you can even read them. After I sat down, I, I realized they were kind of small. But it's all into the harvest, so if, if you Google it or if you go on Facebook or Instagram, all of it is going to be into the harvest, so it's pretty easy to find. And really, we started this a couple of years ago because I don't know the last time you've been in a public space, but probably if you look around, greater than 50% of the people are going to be looking at this device. And so this is a space, just like this is a space. Social media and technology is a space, and that's where a lot of people are at. And so we really want to, to bring the message and the mission of Jesus to as many people as possible using the, the technology that we have in 2019. So our mission is really to help ordinary believers take the message and mission of Jesus into everyday places. And so everything that we're doing online is hopefully geared to help people do that, not superstar believers, ordinary believers, not in special places, but in everyday places. How do we live out this faith that's been entrusted to us and passed down to us? That's really what Into the Harvest is all about. And so if you check that out, that's great. And hopefully we can be an encouragement to you. I went back and looked at my notes to see the last time I was here. And by my records, it was 2012. So it's been a few years since I was here. And a lot has changed in my life and in my family's life since 2012. Over the past seven years, uh, at the time, we, had just, we were just getting ready to move from Washington State down to Southern California, which is where we're living now. So my family made that move in the summer of 2012. I think I was here in the spring of 2012. So that was all up in the air. My two oldest kids have graduated high school since that time and kind of moved into adulthood. My daughter was married this past summer. I've got a daughter and three, three boys. My daughter's the oldest, so she got married. And, you know, we started a couple of ministries since then, New Creation Communities and Into the Harvest. And so I was curious, well, what did I talk about the last time I was here seven years ago? And lo and behold, the focus and the themes that we're going to look at this weekend are pretty similar to what we talked about seven years ago. But most of you weren't here, so that's okay. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to be the focus of our time. He doesn't change. And the mission that he's given us as his people hasn't changed in those last seven years. So Jesus, as he was finishing up his time on earth as a man, he entrusted this work, this mission to his followers. And many of us know it by the Great Commission. It's to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. And then he promised that he would be with us always to the very end of the age. But if you smash that sentence together, then I think you get a true meaning, which is go therefore and make disciples until the end of the age. That is also true, that Jesus wants us to be busy about his business until he returns. So that mission hasn't changed in the past seven years either. And so we're going to be talking about how you and I can live lives of devotion to the master, to his message, and to his mission. And Many times we use one word to capture all of that, and that word is discipleship. Now, at the risk of maybe, don't feel embarrassed, but if you've never heard the word discipleship, raise your hand. Okay, that's great. Everyone has heard the word discipleship, if we're all being honest. No reason to believe we're not. So it's a word that's, that we're all common with. Interestingly, it's not found in the Bible. If you do a word search for discipleship in the English Bible, you're not going to find that word 
come up. So it's a word that we've come up with to capture this life of devotion to the master, his message, and his mission, because that sometimes takes a while to say. So we just say discipleship. But the danger of creating a short code, one word that captures a larger meaning, is sometimes you can lose the meaning and you can begin to drift. What does discipleship really mean? And many believers, I know in my own life, even though maybe we've heard that word, we're familiar with it, we have a vague notion of what the word discipleship means, we're not as clear on it as we should be. And if we had to try to explain it to someone else, then we might struggle to, to say it in a very clear, simple way. What is discipleship? So that's one of the things that I hope will happen tonight and tomorrow morning is that we get some much-needed clarity around this topic of discipleship, what it is, why it's important, and how you can get started and how you can help other people get started. So, so let me just offer this simple definition of discipleship as a, a starting point for us tonight. Discipleship is living a life of devotion to Jesus. And then just put a period, okay? Discipleship is living a life of devotion to Jesus. And that's what we're going to be talking about this weekend, how you and I can live these lives of devotion to Jesus. But before we move into the the what and the how, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the why. Why should you live a life of devotion to Jesus? It's really worth thinking through rather than just assuming that, well, you should, so don't worry about the why. We should spend time really thinking and wrestling with why is it important for us to live this life of devotion to Jesus? I think this is important because a lot of times in Christianity, definitely in American Christianity, we can get the subtle idea that it's really all about us. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus come down to to earth to die for us, to seek and to save the lost? Doesn't Jesus love us? Even though we would never say that, we would never come right out and say, well, really Christianity is all about me. Sometimes that mindset can creep into our thinking. So the idea of spending time talking about how we should live lives of devotion to Jesus is sometimes we don't spend a lot of time thinking about why, why we should do that. But I've got a couple of motivations to get us started tonight. And the first reason that we should live lives of devotion to Jesus is because he deserves it. And that may go without saying, but Jesus is the one that Scripture says has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who has been given the name that is above all names. He's the one that every knee will one day bow before. He's the one that every tongue will one day confess as Lord. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who has taken away my sin and your sin. And all of that means he deserves. He deserves a life of devotion from us. And what's more, he expects it. He wants us to live lives of devotion to to, to himself, far more than I think we realize or appreciate. Sometimes we can get the idea that, well, sure, Jesus would like for me to live a life of devotion, but I'm just one person, and he understands that I'm, I'm a weak person, or he understands the struggles that I'm up against, and it won't be such a big deal if my life isn't everything that it should be as far as my devotion to him. But, but Jesus 
wants and expects us to live lives of devotion to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, you know, this is, a great, this is a great exercise to do, to ask yourself and ask others, why did Jesus die? And there's a lot of true answers to that question. There's not just one right answer. But most people would say, well, He died for our sins, or He died so that we could go to heaven, or He died so that we wouldn't go to hell. But in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes that Jesus died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is one of the reasons why Jesus died on the cross. He laid down his life in immense suffering because he wanted those of us who would live through that sacrifice to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him. And so Jesus, not only does he deserve it, he expects it, he wants it. A second motivation for living a life of devotion to Jesus is because one day each of us will stand before him and have to give an account for the way that we went about living this life that he's gifted us with. Not just our our physical lives, but our lives after coming to know him, our spiritual lives. We will have to stand before Jesus and have to give an account. And this is known as the judgment. All of us will face it. Some believers think that they're not going to face it, but you are going to face it. You're going to stand before Jesus, and Paul says in Romans 12 uh, that it will just be you. Each of us shall have to give an account for himself to God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the same verse or the same chapter that we just talked about with verse 15, in verses 9 and 10, Paul put it this way. He said, We make it our ambition, whether in this life or the next, to be pleasing to him. That's our ambition, that's our goal. Our ambition, whether it's in this life or the next, is to be pleasing to Jesus. That's it. Well, why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give, may be recompensed, paid back for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I just read this morning in Luke chapter 19 about Jesus' story about the the nobleman who went off to a far country to be made king. Do you guys remember this story? And if you remember, before he left, what did he do? Yeah, he had some servants, and he entrusted to his servants his possessions. Do you remember what he told them? That's right. I love that verse. Do business until I return. And then he left. And you guys remember the story? The first servant went, and he, he did business with that, that one mina, that he had been entrusted with, and it became 10. And then the second servant went, and he did business with that mina, and it became five. But the third servant, he just preserved. He just kept what had been. He didn't gain. He didn't lose. Now, the backstory is that all the other citizens who weren't servants of this nobleman, they didn't like him. They did not want him to be made king. In fact, it says that they sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. We're not going to submit to him. But the nobleman was made king, and he did come back. What was the first thing that he did when he returned as king? He calls his servants, which is, I think, fascinating. So he didn't deal with these these renegades who rejected his authority and were opposed to his rule. First thing that he did is he called his servants because he wanted to know what business they had done while he was gone. And the first two got glowing commendations, but the third servant, it was not enough simply to return to 
the king what had been entrusted to him. That's the day of judgment. That's the day of account that each of us is going to have to, to give as we stand before Jesus, that he's entrusted us with our lives, with his word, with the Holy Spirit, with this mission that he's given us. And he is serious about us doing business. And then he dealt with the renegades. He said, okay, ask for these other, bring them in here. So he's going he's gonna to deal with both his servants and those who resist his authority. But he was primarily concerned about his servants, had they been faithful. And so we ought to live these lives of devotion because Jesus deserves it, but also because we're going to have to give an account. Uh, were we living this life in a way that was demonstrative that our devotion to him was sincere? So I would say that there is nothing that should be more important to us than discipleship. If you really believe Jesus is everything that the scriptures say he is, if you really believe that, how can you not be serious about living a life of devotion to him? It really exposes that for many of us, we don't believe those things. We pay lip service to Jesus, but we don't really believe that he's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of the sacrifice that it's going to require. So most Christians, I would say, are mailing it in when it comes to living a life of devotion to Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. How could this be? How could professing Christians not take serious the call to be devoted to such a Lord, to such a master as Jesus? At the end of Luke 12, Jesus tells a couple of short stories that I think have insights for us tonight. And we're going to pick it up in verse 54 and read it through the end of the chapter. A couple of stories that are pretty easy just to read, to read over and move on. But let me read these for you, starting in verse 54 of Luke 12. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A rainstorm is coming, and it does. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and there is. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How can you not know how to interpret the present time? That's the first story. Second story, and why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way so that he will not drag you before the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now, Jesus always told stories on purpose. There's a meaning for us to learn here. So in this first story, the story about the weather, what is the point? What do you guys think? Why did Jesus tell this story about weather? Anyone want to take a stab? So in Jesus's opinion, they had enough information. If they were just paying attention, if they were alert, they did not need special revelation. They were smart enough and there was enough data that they should have been able to figure out the times and act accordingly. Because that was the whole point. That you, you step outside and you look and you realize, hey, the weather's going to be a certain way today. I need to change my behavior so that I'm ready to meet it. That's the whole point of the weather story, that it's on us and there's enough there's enough information for you and I to figure out our times. That's what Jesus said. He says, how can you not know how to interpret the present time? I think he would say the same thing for us. 
There is more than enough information for you to realize what's going on and for you to take action. So the ownership is, is in your court. The other analogy, the story about the courthouse, what is the point there? Well, I think the main point he was making, and you'll see this if you read on into chapter 13. Remember when the Bible was, was written and put together, when Luke wrote Luke, he didn't put chapters. So chapter 12, chapter 13, they actually fit together. But the point of this story about the courthouse is that there's a window of opportunity. Time is limited. And again, it's on you to initiate and take action. So, so Jesus says, if you're being taken to court while you're on the way, you make peace. You make it right with the person who's taking you to court. Because if it gets too far down the road, it's too late. Uh, you'll have to stand before the judge and you're going to be found guilty. So discern the times, take action. And you've got a limited amount of time to do that. You can't just drag your feet. There's no time like the present to discern the time and take action. And so the onus is on us, pun intended. That didn't, that didn't land. It's okay. <laughs> so <laughs> here's, the, uh, here's the reality for us today. I believe this. There has never been a better time to follow Jesus than right now. There's never been a better time to follow Jesus than right now. We have unprecedented freedom to live out our faith according to our conscience, according to the scripture. Unprecedented. Past generations did not have the freedom that we have. We have unprecedented opportunity to share our faith broadly. Again, without any real pushback or, or serious consequences. There's never been a better time to follow Jesus than right now. So what holds us back? And there were three things that came to mind as I was reflecting on this. One is, I, I think we're just ignorant of history. We're ignorant of history. So I've got a couple of stories that I wanted to share with you guys tonight. A little less than 500 years ago, a man named William Tyndale, some of you have heard that name, but it was just a little less than 500 years ago when William Tyndale was publicly executed. They tied him to a stake in a public court. They strangled him to death, and then they burned his body. What was his crime? Does anyone remember? He was convicted of heresy because he had the audacity to translate the scriptures into English. His mission, his desire was that every common plowboy in England who knew how to read could learn God's word for himself. And for that, they executed him publicly. He was put on trial. This wasn't a mob. This was the government arrested him. Actually, he spent 10 years on the run as a fugitive before they finally caught him, brought him back to England. He was out in, he was out in Europe, you know, in the Netherlands, brought him back to England sentenced him, killed him in a brutal way for the crime of translating the Bible into English. Can you imagine risking everything to have the Bible in your own language, putting your life on the line? And this guy did it so that other people, he knew the languages. He could read it in, in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He put his life at risk so that others could read it. That's discipleship. William Tyndale, A Life of Devotion. We celebrate people like the pilgrims without really reflecting on what their journey meant or why it happened. So a hundred years after Tyndale, there was this group, the pilgrims, 
And they ended up, again, they were based out of England. They ended up fleeing England, again, first for the Netherlands, and then they decided to set out, cross the Atlantic Ocean into the unknown, into the wilderness, into a new world that they weren't joining someone who was already there and had already civilized it. They were setting out. Why? Why did they do it? Does anyone know? So they did it because they wanted to practice their faith. They wanted to practice a life of following Jesus, but they did not want to be part of the Church of England. And you could not do that. If you were in England and you were a Christian, you had to participate in the state church, which was the Church of England. So these pilgrims were troublemakers. By the way, do you know who accused Tyndale? Who brought the charges? It was the church. It wasn't the pagans. It wasn't the atheists. It was the state church that tracked him down and had him executed. It was the church that drove the pilgrims into the unknown. They spent months crossing the Atlantic Ocean in the cold, enduring strong winds and storms in a ship that leaked. They finally landed in the New World in December of 1620, a little less than 100 years after Tyndale was executed, 400 years ago. 102 pilgrims landed in Plymouth in December of 1620. By March, so three months later, 43 of them were dead. That's discipleship. That's wanting to live out a life of devotion with a clear conscience so desperately that you would drag your family across an ocean into the unknown so that you could do it. It's pretty amazing. And we're ignorant of history. Because we're ignorant of history, we don't appreciate how good we have it right now. I think that's powerful. We're, we're ignorant of history, and therefore we don't appreciate. We don't discern the times. We don't look at the weather, and we don't take action. A second reason is that we're blinded by abundance. As I said, Tyndale lived 10 years as a fugitive on the run and ultimately gave his life so that he could get a few Bibles translated into English. I want everyone to hold up their phone. So Tyndale gave his life to translate a few Bibles into English. And now we have, how many Bibles, how many English Bibles would you say are available on your phone? Scores of options for us in English, not other languages, just English. We have the Bible in English on demand, whichever English translation we prefer. We're blinded by abundance. We have so much that we're blinded. We're blinded by it. We don't appreciate it. The pilgrims crossed an ocean in winter, heading into a vast wilderness just so they could practice their faith in a good conscience. And now, let's be honest, many of us struggle to cross our room, to pick up our Bible, to read it. That's not as it should be. Well, a third reason why we don't take advantage of this unprecedented freedom and opportunity that we have is because we are immersed in our culture and in our time. And we can't help it. This, this one's not on us. You're born into the time and the culture that that you're destined to. I heard a story recently about two young fish that were swimming along, and as they're swimming through the water, uh, an older fish is swimming in the opposite direction, and he calls out to them. He says, hey, boys, how's the water? And uh, they don't really know what to answer, so they don't say anything. They, they pass, and then one of the young fish looks at the other, and he says, what's water? And that's the reality for all of us. And the water for us is a culture of consumerism. We're so influenced by it, we don't even realize it because that's what we're born into, that's what we live our lives in. And the, the idea that your life should be characterized by life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness 
it's sometimes really hard to sync with deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, which one's going to have more sway? For most of us, it's, it's going to be this one. This is the one that we're raised in. This is the water that we live in. And Jesus is calling us to a countercultural life, a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. So the good news for us, and this really is good news, is that we don't have to cross an ocean. We don't have to risk our lives to read the Bible in English. The only thing holding us back, really, the only thing holding us back from living this life of devotion to Jesus is us. And that's amazing if we can just discern the times and then take action. It's on us to understand the freedom and the opportunity that we have, to understand that there's never been a better time to follow Jesus than right now. You know, what, what we claim to believe really means very little. In the final analysis, what you say you believe means very little in the final analysis. What counts is whether what you say you believe drives your choices and your lifestyle. That's what counts. What you say you believe really doesn't matter. If what you say you believe drives your choices and your lifestyle, that's what counts. Jesus is not impressed with our words. What we truly believe is exposed by how we live. So discipleship, how does it look? What does it take? Where do we start? And here's where I think we have to be careful because, again, many sincerely minded Christians who are are tracking up to this point, they will try to live a life of devotion through two extremes. One is what I would, I would call emotionalism. And so what they're seeking is they want to feel close to God. And so maybe they really listen to Christian music or maybe they sing praise and worship songs or maybe they follow a charismatic teacher because they feel close to God when they listen to this teacher or when they go to this service. And so their devotion is reduced to how they feel, their emotions. And if they feel close to God in their, in their mind, they're living a life of devotion to Him. The other side is intellectualism. And so people who want to live a life of devotion to Jesus will start studying the scriptures. And what, what they think counts the most is, do they have the right doctrine? Can, do they know more than most people? Can they explain it to others? But I want to say that both of those are, are not quite the way that we want to approach this life of devotion. Because really, at the end of the day, it's still about us, how I feel, what I know, instead of being about Jesus. What does he want? Am I living a life of obedience to him? So our discipleship starts and ends in the same place that it did for the first followers of Jesus. A few years ago, I noticed that the first and last words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew's gospel serve as really good bookends for us when it comes to discipleship and living the life of, dis- of, of a disciple. So the first words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew's gospel are in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. So I know someone here has that verse memorized. So what does Matthew 4, 19 say? Exactly. So the first thing we see Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew 4, 19 is, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, what's the last words that we see Jesus speaking to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19? Yes. And so in these two verses, Matthew 4, 19, Matthew 28, 19, we find what we're going to call the pull and the push of discipleship. 
and we're going to spend the rest of tonight and tomorrow talking about the pull and the push of discipleship. Matthew 4:19, come, follow me. That is the, the pull of discipleship. Matthew 28:19, go, make disciples. Both require us to act. So it's not how you feel, it's not what you know. It's are you responding to the Lord who is calling you to act? And He's going to call you in two directions. He's going to pull you, come, follow me. And then He's going to push you, go, make disciples. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 5. And we're going to finish with this passage. This is either an expanded account of what we just heard from Matthew 4. Or perhaps it's a second incident where Jesus was calling these fishermen to come and follow him. But Luke gives us a more expanded account of this, this beginning of their journey, this beginning of their life of devotion to Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask for a volunteer to read this for us. And here's the deal. You have to read it nice, loud, and slow enough that we can think about what's being read, okay? So do we have someone that's willing to do that? All right. Uh, verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11 of Luke 5. Okay. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Nerisset. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come up and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Thank you. What was your name? Sarah. Sarah. Okay, so we're going to read it a second time, and same qualifications that Sarah demonstrated, but I'd like it in a different English translation. Yours was fine. I just want to hear it in a different one. And a tool that we sometimes use to help us really think about the Bible is to imagine it as a script for a movie or for a scene that you're going to videotape, all right? So right now you're the director and you've been tasked to shoot a, a short video recreating this story from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So now, as, as you listen to it read through this second time, I want you to be thinking about what location do we need to be shooting at? What's it, what does it look like? Who do we need to cast? Who's gonna be, who are the characters in this scene? And what's happening? What special effects are we going to need? You're going to need some special effects for this one. Okay, so I need another volunteer to read it. Yes, Joe. And again, be visualizing what's happening in this story. Now it happened. The crowd was pressing around him, listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gethsemane. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he 
got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, you worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I'll do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him with all his companions because of that catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right, so opening scene, the camera starts rolling. What's happening? Pressure everywhere. So there's a, you're going to have to have a lot of extras. There's a lot of people in this scene. There's a crowd. And they're pressed, Jesus is pressed up against the water. Maybe he's completely surrounded by a semicircle. All right. What else is going on? So sun's glistening off the water. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's early morning. It sounds like it probably was. Peter's wife's waiting on him to cook breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so to get home. So Peter, what is he doing? He's in the scene, but getting his nets fixed, man. He's at work, or he's finishing up from work. He's uh, cleaning his nets, and he's got some partners. There's a second boat, at least, uh, with James and John. And so uh, we don't know were they were they there to hear Jesus? Were they there because it just so happened that's where Jesus was, and they were wrapping up their night shift, cleaning their nets, and they were listening in as Jesus taught. But as Jesus is teaching the crowds, Peter and his partners are there. Simon Peter and his partners are there. And Jesus makes a request, right? So what does Jesus ask? Not yet. <laughs> he does do that too. But Yeah, he, he asked for his boat. He, um, he says here, he got in, this is verse 3. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. I guess he got in before he asked. And asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And Simon said, okay. Simon said, all right, you can use my boat. And so they put out a little bit. And any of you who have been on the water know that uh, the acoustics are much better. You can actually hear. It's like a microphone. So now not only did Jesus have space, but more people could hear what Jesus had to say. Because it wasn't like they were just crowded around him and just the first few rows could hear him. Now much more people were able to hear what Jesus had to say. Now, what did Jesus teach about that day when he was teaching the crowds? We don't know. So you'd have to make that up in the script. Or maybe uh, there would just be some footage, some dramatic pictures of Jesus talking, but background music. Um, very interesting. This story, thousands of people perhaps, but we don't know who they were or what they heard. That was not the important part of the story that Luke had for us to know. At any rate, Jesus finishes his teaching and uh, he says... Thanks, Peter. If you can just put me back on the shore, 
I'll be on my way, right? That's not what he said, right? What did he say? Take it out to the deep. Yeah, maybe Jesus was feeling good. He had just had a great teaching lesson, uh, and he was, hey, let's go fishing. Let's, uh, let's put out into the deep. And so what, is, what does Peter say at this time? We've already done this. <laughs> right. He says, uh, what word does he use when he talks to Jesus? Did you guys catch it? Master. Master. He says, Master, we've been working all night. We're fishermen, by the way. And we caught nothing but, very important word, but at your word, we'll do it. At your word, I will lower the nets. Now, that word master is important. Uh, it's, a, it's a term of respect, but it's, it would be akin, not maybe exact, but it would be professor. Professor, we've been fishing all night. You've just done your thing, teaching the crowds. That's great. We, fishermen, have been fishing all night, and we've caught nothing. But at your word, I'll lower the nets. And, of course, when he lowers the nets, what happens? The nets are filled. They start to haul them in. They get excited. They call out, John, James, get out here. So John, James, I don't know, maybe they had a sailboat, maybe they had paddles. They somehow get out there, and, and they start hauling fish in. How long do you think it took? Because what does it say happens? They filled both boats with fish. How long do you think it would take to, to fill boats with fish to the point that they start to sink? Maybe a few minutes, I would think, for sure. What do you think Jesus was doing? See, as the director, you've got to be thinking about these things. You cut to Jesus. What's he doing there in the boat? I think he's probably getting a little bit of uh, humor out of it as these boats are getting weighted down. Initially, what do you think the fishermen are feeling as they, as they begin to, as the nets are heavy? I'm talking at the very beginning here. They're pumped. Yes, they've been fishing all night. No fish. Now, all of a sudden, more fish than they've ever caught at any one time. So, James, John, get out here. Help us out. But the emotion shifts, right? When the boat starts to sink, that's a problem. Um, possibly these, these guys could not swim. It's at least possible, maybe even probable, that they did not know how to swim. So the boat starts to sink, and the emotions change from excitement to, yeah, maybe some fear. <laughs> maybe some fear. And, at, you know, a light bulb goes off in Peter's head, right? That moment, he realizes that this guy in the boat is different. And so what does he say? What does he call him? That's a different word. That's not professor. Lord is an authority, it's a recognition that you're a very important person. <laughs> you have amazing authority. These fish, I've been fishing my whole life. This is not the way it works. And he also has a, an acknowledgement of his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness, which is appropriate. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. But Jesus doesn't give him a hard time and does not focus on his unworth. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. So when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. And so there's a few principles that I want to highlight for us tonight about getting started with discipleship that I think we see in Peter and these first fishermen, these first disciples. And the first thing that I appreciate about Peter was that he was available. He, he was available to Jesus on a small level. Jesus asked to use his boat, and Peter said, okay. In fact, remember how Jesus said it? How did he, how did he word it in verse 3? He said, put out a little way. Put out a little way from the shore. And Peter said, okay. And it's going to be the same for us. 
that Jesus is going to want you to be available to him in small ways. He's a, he is a reasonable Lord. But he is going to want you to be available to him in small ways. And then I think we see from Peter in verses 4 and 5 a willingness to obey, even when he did not understand. Even when you could even say he knew it was foolish. He knew what Jesus was asking was silly. But at your word, we'll let down the nets. Those two little things, being available in a small way and being obedient in ways that are small, but maybe even go, go against our understanding, led to a revelation that Peter never would have understood Jesus the way that he did if he had not let him use his boat and if he had not obeyed when it didn't make sense. Okay, so it's the same for us. If, if you don't make yourself available, if you're too busy for Jesus, and Peter had every right to say, hey, I'm just getting off my shift. I'm cleaning these nets and I'm going home. Sorry, you can't use my boat. And he would have missed all of this. Or he could have said, look, you gave your talk. I'm heading back in. And he would have missed it. But because he was available, because he was willing to obey, even when it didn't make sense, he understood Jesus in a way that no one in the crowd got that day. Think about that. Everyone in the crowd was there to hear Jesus, and they got to hear Jesus. But they didn't get to know Jesus the way Peter did. So once Peter had a revelation of Jesus that he understood more, that this isn't just a professor, this is Lord, he submitted himself to him. He, was, he humbled himself before Jesus. Same thing for us. We need to recognize who Jesus is and humble ourselves. Not just say nice words to him. Peter fell down on his knees and said, I'm a sinful man. That led to advanced availability. You know, when they brought the boat back in, he was completely available to Jesus and advanced obedience. They left everything and followed him. I think it's so poetic the way this story words things. Put out a little way from the shore. Then what did he ask him to do? Put out into the deep. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to ask of us. He will start off by asking you to put out a little way, but be careful. He'll take over your life. The story ends with Peter leaving everything to follow Jesus, and it's worth it. That's the way it should be. So a few questions for you guys as we wrap up tonight. Jesus could always draw a crowd, but that's not what this story was about. It's easy to be in the crowd. Jesus was building a crew, and very few people ended up in those boats. Very few people ended up following Jesus. So tonight, that's just one question. Are you content to be in the crowd, listening to Jesus, coming out to events, or do you really want to put out into the deep? and get to know who this Lord is and become one of his followers, to live a life of devotion to him. Another question, how can you be available to Jesus? What's your boat tonight? What is it that you already have that Jesus would like you to make available to him? So do some thinking about that tonight, and are you willing to let him use it? Will you obey his instructions even when they don't make sense? Or will you trust what you already know from past experiences is true? Peter chose to obey out of deference to Jesus against his, his past experience. What he knew, he knew how fish work. And yet he was willing to, at your word, we'll put down the nets. And then do you, do you appreciate how amazing it is to be one of his followers? Because it really is. It's amazing to be called to follow Jesus. 
Jesus is going to draw us close to himself. He's going to ask us to make ourselves available to him. And if you're willing to do that, he'll show you who he is in a way that you've never seen before. And that will lead you into the deeper waters. Mark 3.14 says that Jesus appointed 12 for two reasons. What were they? That, they? that they might be with him, that he might send them out. Pull and push. But you're not going to go out. You're not going to be sent out unless you're willing to be with him. And Peter was willing to make himself available to Jesus. So here's a challenge that I have for you guys tonight. To take some time on your own to draw near to Jesus and to tell him that you're tired of being in the crowd, that you want to be part of his crew. And if you tell him that and you ask him, show me how I can be available. Show me where you want me to obey. He'll do that. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is tomorrow morning when you get up, make time to start your day by drawing near to Jesus. We have this amazing promise from the book of James. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But again, the, the choice is ours. The, the initial action is on our part. But there's a promise. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So tomorrow morning, start your day by drawing near to Jesus. Listen through his word, bring him your prayers, and then take action based on what he tells you. Never been a better time to follow Jesus than tonight, right now. But it's up to you to recognize that and to take action. And it starts by committing to a life of discipleship and allowing Jesus to pull you to himself, into his life, and into his mission. Come follow me is the pull of discipleship and you cannot be a disciple without it. Now, tomorrow we're going to talk about the push of discipleship. So I know some of you may not be able to be there, but hopefully you can. And uh, we'll learn the second half of this life of devotion that Jesus is calling us to. 